So guys, we are carrying on in our um, long journey through uh, the person Jesus Christ. We're just starting out in the journey. And remember the metaphor, we're painting the Sistine Chapel on the ceiling of Signal Church and the ceiling of our lives. It took years for Michelangelo to get all those panels up. So we're just doing little bits of the roof at a time. Every single Sunday, we will learn something new about Jesus that probably we're not going to repeat for a long time. So if ever you've been motivated not to miss just one, this is it. So we just thought this week and then the next two times we preach, we're going to start in the part of the Bible that doesn't even get to Jesus yet. I'm talking about the Older Testament, the Older Testament. And then um, because the fascinating thing about this Older Testament was all written before Jesus came. And... Uh, if you flip through the pages, you read it, it's like you can hear footsteps approaching. Louder and louder, someone's coming, is the title of my message, and is one of the big themes of the, the Old Testament. Someone is coming. And uh, there are prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah King. Okay, these are huge prophecies. Now, of course, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the one that was promised. So think about it. If it's true that, um, that there were prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus, and it's all in this book, it means at least four things. Number one, it means that the Bible is one of a kind. Not many books around. In fact, I can't think of any other ones. In the front of the part of the book written centuries before has prophecies, and the last part of the book tells you how those prophecies were fulfilled. I mean, you don't get that in the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads, in Vedanta Hinduism. You don't get that in the Quran of Islam. You don't get that in the Book of Mormon. The Bible is one of a kind. I can put it like this. The Bible is God's word. It's one of the, the evidences that this is no ordinary book. But it also means that Jesus is it. There's a lot of spiritual emotion that comes when you're in the Christian faith, especially if you are being filled with the Holy Spirit. But you also need to go, hang on, am I just being swept along by emotion? Maybe, maybe we all just got washed away by something irrational. How can we be sure that what we're giving our lives to is the real thing? And at least one answer is, well, you can use your mind to look at the prophecies. Did Jesus fulfill those prophecies? Well, that's a strong indicator that Jesus is it. It also means that God is in control. I know that our lives sometimes feel very random. Human history seems chaotic and tumultuous. And yet Isaiah um, 46 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. If it's true that God has made promises and then we've got a record of him fulfilling those promises, it's one more sign that in the chaos of human history, God is in control, which I don't know about you, it does comfort me. <laughs> Somebody's in control around here. And then fourthly, it means that God will keep his promises to you. God is in the habit of making promises to each of us, to entire communities. Well, if we've got documented records of him keeping his promises, well, at least it gives us more confidence. I love number 20, Numbers 23. God is not human that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So let's speak about these prophecies in the Older Testament. There are two kinds. There are obvious prophecies, and then there are more hidden prophecies. The obvious prophecies about a coming Messiah, pretty much anybody who was reading the Bible before Jesus came would go, oh, well, here's some prophecies about the coming Messiah. 
So, so for example, pretty soon in the Bible, in Genesis 49 verse 10, it speaks about how the scepter will not depart from Judah, who's one of the 12 sons of Israel. And then Isaiah 11 verse 1, it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So Judah has got a descendant called Jesse from his roots as a branch will bear fruit. And the word branch is um, connected to a Messiah in the Old Testament. So Judah, someone in the downline of Judah, descendant of Judah is going to be the Messiah. Hang on, someone, one of these descendants is Jesse. One of Jesse's descendants is going to be the Messiah. And then by the time you get to Numbers 23, I mean, Jeremiah 23, it says that he will rise up from David's line, a a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely. Not just Jesse, Jesse's one son, David. So those are obvious prophecies. Somebody who is a biological descendant of David will be the Messiah. Then there's hidden prophecies. These are prophecies that when you're reading the Old Testament, uh, you kind of don't realize that these are prophecies. But then you... Then Jesus comes, and then the people who believed in the Scriptures experience Jesus. They open up the Old Testament, they read it again, and it's like watching the movie Sixth Sense, which children shouldn't watch because it's terrifying. But if you watch the movie, you know, suddenly at the end, he has a flashback to all these moments, and you're like, oh, there were all of these little pointers, these hidden, you know, hidden indicators. So, for example, uh, the disciples are with Jesus, and one of the disciples betrays Jesus. And then he's filled with remorse, and he betrays Jesus for 30 shekels. He takes it back to the chief priest. He says, keep your money. They got the money. They don't want to do with it. So they they buy a potter's field with the money. Can you imagine what the Christians soon after who read the Old Testament again and find a specific description of that? Hidden prophecies. So let me just run through some of the the obvious and hidden prophecies that point to Jesus that that we know from the New Testament Jesus fulfilled. Firstly, prophecies about his life, that he would one day come to the world born as a child and his name would be Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a, a, a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. It's quite a specific promise because just two chapters later, speaking about the same child, says, unto us a child is born and speaks about him being the son of David who will reign in righteousness. The word virgin there in Hebrew can be translated uh, unmarried woman or a, a woman who hasn't had sex before, a virgin. Interestingly, the Greek New Testament, because the Christians didn't read the Hebrew Bible, they read the Greek version of the Old Testament in the first century, and the Greek word there is Parthenon, which means specifically not just an unmarried woman, but a virgin. And secondly, that he would come out from Egypt. Uh, Matthew 2 verse 15 quotes Hosea 11, out of Egypt I have called my son. And of course, Moses took Israel Israel, God's son, out of Egypt. Well, when Jesus was a little boy, he is a refugee in Africa. Jesus lived in Africa for some time. He's in Egypt, and then he comes out of Egypt back to Israel. His appearance would not be more impressive than that of the average person. I know Hollywood has made us think that Jesus is dazzlingly good-looking, but apparently the prophecy said, no, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is in his appearance that we should desire him. You know, if there was a picture of 20 men and Jesus is one of those faces, your eyes might circle around some other men who you find more dazzling. 
Of course, to be in the presence of Jesus, you might then realize there's something else about this person. He would live a sinless life, one marked by suffering. Isaiah 53 says, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. How's this one? He will appear as a light coming from Gentile, which is the northern region of the Jewish people in ancient Palestine. Isaiah 9 verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living on the land, in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Prophecies also say that he would be a wise, he'd be wise teaching people what life is really about. Isaiah 11 says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and the fear of the Lord. I mean, everything Jesus said was just so profound, so sharp, so brilliant. Also, there's a little mention of the fact that he would be a man empowered by the spirit. Jesus only embarks on his public ministry once the spirit, Colin, is my man. Good to see you. Colin and I used to go to a youth group at what's now Jubilee Church when we were teens. Eh? That guy looks like he's only 35. I don't know if you've been in cryogenics or something, bro. You're looking good. I got distracted by dazzling good looks. Jeez, I'm commenting on guys' looks a lot today. I'm sorry, I apologize. Do you know, like, yeah, yes. <laughs> You're all so good looking. That's, that's, that's what it is. He would perform miracles, heal the blind, enable the lame to walk, even raise the dead. Isaiah 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. He would come into Jerusalem and announce himself as king, entering not on a war horse or a stallion, but on a donkey, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, shout daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. And that he would come to the temple, Malachi 3, one of the last chapters in the Old Testament. He'll come to the temple. So those are prophecies about his life. Then there's a lot of prophecies about his death, that he'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 shekels, used to buy a field called the potter's field, that's in Zechariah 11, verses 12 to 13, that he would be severely beaten, Isaiah 50, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, that he'd experienced terrible suffering. Uh, one of the Psalms that is a clear Psalm about the coming Messiah, Psalm 22, that starts off with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read the Gospels, Jesus just said that line while he was on the cross. But if you read the rest of the Psalm, it's amazing how it describes a person who's publicly mocked and shamed, brought down to the jaws of death in the midst of terrible suffering and humiliation. And then he's miraculously delivered by God, to the praise of his name across the world. In Psalm 22, it speaks about people gambling for his clothes. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It mentions his hands and his feet being pierced, killed through torturers. Psalm 22, 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. He prays that in 1000 BC. When was 
When was crucifixion invented? 700 BC by the Persians. Before crucifixion has even been invented, here's a prophecy about somebody who gets their hands and their feet mauled in their execution. Isaiah 52 to 53, a long passage, I'll come back to that, speaks about this, the, 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 the death of Jesus. And there it speaks about death as a means of accomplishing salvation for others. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. His death was no ordinary death. Isaiah 53 says somebody's getting killed, Everybody around thinks that this person is, is getting killed for their own sins, but they don't realize that he's actually getting killed for their sins. And then there's prophecies about his resurrection and growing reign. After dying, he would rise from the dead victorious. Psalm 16, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. I, I mentioned Isaiah 52 to 53. I still remember um, being a Christian for a year, and I was just wanted to convert all of my friends to faith because it was so real, so true, so amazing. But how? You know, you need to persuade these guys. So I, I used to walk home with one Jewish friend. And I still remember, like, talking to him. Nothing was working. And then I, at the bottom of my road, School closed alone, we sit on a wall. I pull out the Bible from my school bag. I'm like, bro, can I read you something? I read Isaiah 52 and 53 to him. And he goes, is that in the New Testament? So I go, no, it's in your Bible. <laughs> Listen to these words. Isaiah 52, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You know, that was one of the details. He, he got the grave of a, a rich man. But then it carries on. The same, the same prophecy says, so it speaks about his brutal death. And then it says, and then he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will hear their, and he will bear their iniquities. It speaks about a resurrection. And then his victory, we're told in these prophecies, will be proclaimed by messengers all, messengers all across the world. Isaiah 53, therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. And then straight after Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54 comes, sing barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who never were in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than her of who has a husband, says the Lord, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left, your descendants will dispossess nations. Speaks about this radical explosion of people that are the spoils of this crucified, resurrected servant. And that he would also bring Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, into the people of God. Isaiah 49 says the servant has the mission of regathering the tribes of Israel 
to bring them back to God. But the servant feels as if he has failed in his mission. But then God says, not only will he ultimately regather Israel, but he will, in Isaiah 49 verse 6, says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, the whole world, every nation, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So my question to you is like, who in human history fulfilled these prophecies? It's not like you've got to choose between four people, and they're pretty close. It's only one person whose fingerprints match. So to be fair, this point that I'm making is public information. And Jewish people especially feel threatened by what I've said because they believe the Old Testament is the word of God. So there tends to be pushback because my friend Leon, he feels a little bit cornered now by me <laughs> in your Bible. So there's some common pushbacks that come from people who believe the Old Testament, but they're not sure that Jesus is. They're pretty sure Jesus isn't the one the Old Testament prophesied. Uh, prophesized about three main objections objection number one Jesus didn't fulfill all the prophecies that's what they say because it's true that there are prophecies that speak about Jesus ruling the whole world Isaiah 9 of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever still so much injustice in the world argument is well the Messiah hasn't come so don't say Jesus is the Messiah. The world is still messed up. And uh, interestingly, why did more Jewish people not jump on to Jesus as the Messiah? Many did, but, but I'd say most in the first century didn't. And one of the answers is that they were expecting a Messiah that would deal with the problem they felt every day, the Roman bullies that occupied them. They loved these passages that spoke about a Messiah putting down the enemies of the people of God. So when Jesus came, instead of kicking Caesar off the throne, kicking the Romans out of Palestine, he gets crucified by the Romans. What a disappointment. Cannot be. Cannot be. They didn't expect the Messianic prophecies to be fulfilled in stages. Instead, Instead, they just awaited for this part about him ruling. Interestingly, there's something called the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 98a, in which the rabbis are looking at these texts that promise the Messiah. They're trying to make sense of it. They're having a discussion. In Daniel 7 verse 3, it says the Messiah will come gentle and riding on a donkey. But then they notice, sorry, no, that's in, that's in Zechariah 9 verse 9. But they notice in Daniel 7 verse 13 that the Messiah will come with the clouds of heaven. As a ruling conqueror. So they're trying to make sense of it. Which one will it be? They come up with a theory. Well, if we're good as the Jewish people, then he'll come conqueror, you know, like victorious. If we're really bad, then he's going to come on, 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 on a donkey. So they're saying it's either or. What they don't realize is it's both and. And that's the thing you couldn't have really figured out staring at these prophecies. You had to wait and see. Jesus he comes and he fulfills the prophecies in stages. He hasn't fulfilled all the prophecies yet. The prophecy of his ultimate reign is still in the future. But the fact that he's fulfilled so many prophecies already is why we become pretty confident that he's going to fulfill the rest. It's like you, read, you hold up a Bible and there's the Old Testament and you go, okay, this prophesied the coming of Jesus and he came. Then you look at the New Testament. Now there's prophecies of Jesus coming back. 
to heal the world. He hasn't done that yet, but he's got a pretty good track record, this God, of keeping his promises. Second objection people give, hey man, Jesus just rolled the lucky dice. It was a fluke. It was just a fluke that he managed to get a lot of these prophecies right. And there's an interesting mathematician called Peter Stoner. He's a mathematics professor. He takes eight of the prophecies about the Messiah, and he did it as an assignment with his maths class. And he said, what are the statistical probability of one person fulfilling these eight prophecies? And he chose the prophecies that had to do with the earthly life of Jesus and the details of his death. And these math students, their brains start to fume, and eventually they pop out with a number. The chance of one person fulfilling these prophecies is one in 10 to the power of 1,021, <laughs> which means nothing to us until Peter Stone explains it. He says, imagine putting silver coins 60 meters high across the entire world. Okay, so we're all squashed under these coins. You take one person and you blindfold them, and then you tell them to walk. And then at, when they're ready, they must put their hand down, dig, pull up a coin. He says the chance of this person picking up the one coin with a purple dot is the chance of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. Third objection, final one I want to deal with, is they say Jesus purposely fulfilled these prophecies. Jesus was ambitious. He came into the world. He saw the prophecies. He says, I've got to stab at this. It's a legitimate thesis, so let's, let's, let's just think about it. Think about the things that you can't manipulate and you can't control. Think about, think about his birth. Micah 5 is 2, the ruler will be born in Bethlehem. That's like being born in Hrabo. I mean, it's a small little, you know. The next president of South Africa will be born in Hrabo. That cuts out a lot of, you know, wannabe upstarts. <laughs> Jesus couldn't have planned where he was born. In his blood is David's blood. Not everybody was a biological descendant of David. Jesus was. And then, like I said, the manner of his death. How do you orchestrate your own crucifixion? <laughs> But what especially gets to me is the timing of Jesus' coming. Because there's clues in the Old Testament about the timing of the coming of the Messiah. One prophecy in 450 BC, recorded in Malachi verse, chapter 3, verse 1, speaks about how the Messiah will come to the temple. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. When did the temple get destroyed? AD 70. If the Messiah didn't come before AD 70, it can't happen anymore. There has been no more temple in Jerusalem since AD 70. So you can't have Messiahs in AD 80. He had to come to the temple. And we do know that Jesus came to the temple. But remarkably, there's also prophecies about the time span, the, 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 the bracket on the other side. This week, Eli and I were driving to school. I take him to school. Years ago, I wrote a little uh, devotional on Daniel. 
So we, we read it, you know, I, I tell him, read it. Eli is nice and he reads it and we talk about it. And we were reading Daniel chapter two. Blew my mind away again. Daniel is um, in this foreign land and Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare dream. Daniel knows the dream without Nebuchadnezzar telling him. And it's his dream. He sees a statue made by hands. The statue has got a, a head of gold. It's got a chest and arms made of silver. It's got um, a, a, a thighs and tummy made of bronze. And it's got legs made of iron. And in this nightmarish dream, there's a statue standing there. Suddenly, there is this rock that gets cut out of a, a mountain, but the rock is not cut from human hands. And God sets up a kingdom because the stone smashes into the legs made of iron and then grows to become the greatest kingdom ever. What the heck? Well, this, pro this prophecy happens 500 years before Jesus comes. And Daniel explains it has to do with the coming empires. So the head of gold is the, um, is the Babylonian kingdom. The next kingdom that comes, the chest of silver and the arms of silver, is the Persian in, uh, kingdom. The next one, the tummy and the thighs, is the Greek kingdom. What comes after the Greek kingdom in 63 BC? The legs of iron. So there's a prophecy about the succession of kingdoms. And then we're told that the rock of when God sets up his kingdom, it's going to hit that kingdom. When did the Roman Empire start? 63 BC. When was the temple destroyed? AD 70. Now you've got a window period. When did Jesus come? In the middle. Flip. Wow! I mean, I don't know about you, I, I'm a doubtful person. I doubted my faith so many times. Then I do read stuff like this in the Bible, I'm like, stop doubting. Jesus is it. It's the real thing. I'm delighted there's some emotion, some <laughs> spiritual emotion. <laughs> The Bible is God's word. Jesus is the one upon all our hopes are resting. God is in control, and then the promises he made to your life, he can keep them. He'll keep them. I love that picture of this kingdom, this rock cut not from human hands. Jesus is the son of God. We're told that it comes from this mountain. The mountain is God's kingdom. And it breaks off from God's kingdom and it invades this world. Christ is the manifestation of God's kingdom. Christ is, Jesus is the heaven, the earthly counterpart of the Father in heaven. They co-rule. The Father in heaven, Jesus on the earth, ruling to, together. To, to come into Christ's kingdom is to come into God's kingdom. And if you want to be in God's kingdom, you need to come into Christ's kingdom. And it smashes into this empire. Well, we know from human history, it looks like the Roman Empire wins over Jesus. But not so quick. He has outlasted the kingdom that killed him. And his kingdom grows because the stone, it grows and it grows. It's a growing kingdom. 
in the armpit of the Roman Empire, you've got this phenomenon of this person who's crucified, rises from the dead, he's got some followers. Fast forward, 1900, 10% of Africa was Christian. Now it's 50%. 1970, 1% of China was Christian. Now 10%. It seems like a growing kingdom to me. Last Sunday, today, more people are meeting in China to worship Jesus than across the whole of Europe. It's pretty exciting to be part of something moving forward. I don't think we must get full of ourselves. I think we must also realize that this rock needs to impact our lives. The kingdom needs to spread through our lives. We need to give over more and more of our lives to Jesus. His kingdom's not just spreading through the world. His kingdom's spreading through your life. A little bit at a time. I'm going to ask you to stand up. Shall we sing? Hey, if you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, you were just waiting for the right time where you felt this was the right thing to do. May I propose today's the day. You're like, man, I know you have, not all your questions have been answered, but maybe there's enough light to go, okay, I think I'm going in. <laughs> I think I'm going to join this crazy bunch who call on Jesus as king. You're welcome to the family. Trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, who rose again from the dead so he can live in you by his Holy Spirit. Right today, trust in Jesus Christ. Um, This song was written by a woman called Ella, who has gone to be with the Lord, Um, and she was part of Signal when it was still Woodstock Community Church, and um, so I invite you into that legacy today. I know our church is growing so much and so fast, and I think it's important and beautiful to remember and honor what has built what yeah part of what is built this community so